0: Where are we up to in our Bible study? We are starting a new week and our new week is entitled The Bible as History. quite a history it is, isn't it? I am going to love this one. I already know I'm going to enjoy this particular Bible study because I love history and I love everything to do with Bible history. And the reality is, is that the Bible is a book that records history. Indeed. Unlike any other ancient book. Or any other ancient document that comes from the era of the Bible. Do you know what the other ancient records record, other than as an alternative to history? They record—I don't know what do they—they they record victories. Victories. Yes. They're Even they're... when they were soundly defeated, they always record victories. <laughs> Indeed, there is never anything negative recorded on the walls of Egypt or Babylon or Nineveh or Nimrud or any of these other great cities of the past. Everything is given a positive spin, even when they were defeated. Indeed, they so basically, what you get is spin. Yep. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that they record deaths,
1: deaths, almighty deaths that were that, that were significant, but. Uh like
0: the the deaths of pharaohs, for example. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yep, yep. That, of course, that is recorded. Um, but as far as the history events. goes, is, as far as the events of history goes, what you have to be able to do is you have to be able to operate as a detective, and you have to find corroborating sources, and so you have to find uh, the record of a particular event, and those events are usually battles, because history is really the study of warfare. Um, and when you find, say, for instance, the Hittite version and or the Assyrian version, and you find then the Egyptian version of the same battle, you can then compare the two versions, and you'll start to get a little bit close to what may have happened. <laughs> Eventually you work out more or less
1: exactly who it actually was that won and who may have come off second best. That's
0: right. And so if you study the history of the... Uh, the Persians, or you study the history of the Babylonians, or the Assyrians, or the Egyptians, you are not going to find there any record of any defeats. Okay, let's think about the Bible. Does the Bible record any defeats? It does indeed. In fact, the Bible starts... In Genesis chapter 3, we were talking the last two weeks about as Genesis being the foundation, and in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible begins by recording the most epic defeat for human beings even imaginable. Oh, absolutely. The greatest defeat of all time. And so the Bible sets a foundation right there at the beginning of, okay, this is going to be a different kind of book than any other ancient book. This book is going to tell it as it was. And what you might be thinking is that the Bible, while it does record defeats... Uh, most of the
1: defeats end up good for example there's a the story of Saul who was uh persecuting Christians and killing them because they oh Christians. yes 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 and he became he became a Christian but it also does record just just things that end badly for example the the death of Stephen Uh, who was stoned to death. But
0: did it end badly? Because here's the interesting thing, and you've raised a really good point here, because while it ended badly for Stephen, did it end badly for the Christian church? Well, not. it it sort of
1: uh, created a bit more of an emphasis and, and, and brought them more into the limelight. Uh, but for Stephen, it did end badly. Yeah, for Stephen, it ended badly.
0: Um, uh, but what it did create was an environment in which Christianity was scattered around the world. Indeed. Um, and persecution drove that. And it resulted finally in the conversion of um, Saul, Paul himself. Yep. Uh, which was, you know, probably the most significant conversion in New Testament times uh, that was ever made. And so when you start to compare all of these um, defeats what you're going to find is that there is a theme that runs through the Bible where God takes defeats and turns it into an almighty victory. Absolute, over and over and over again. And there's a lesson there for us because we serve a God who can turn your defeats into victory. If you're feeling defeated today, no one remembers that God can turn your defeats into outstanding victories. Okay, let's think about some major characters of the Bible as well, while we're on this theme and hopefully we're not running too far ahead here, but let's think about the founders of the Israelite nation. Yes. Okay, so uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob. Yep. And Great uh, biblical heroes, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Uh, people that the Jewish nation in particular looks back on with tremendous respect, and so do we, and rightfully so as Christians, and so does Islam. Okay, so your Abrahamic religions look back to these three individuals as men of, you know, great uh, significance. significance. In fact, God looks at them as men of great significance. Let's go over to, um, and I'm getting a bit sidetracked here, but that's all right. I'm going to stay on my sidetrack for a moment. Um, Let's go to Exodus. This is probably, I'm probably running way ahead here. There's also... There's Exodus chapter 3. Another, another little sign. There's also
1: another, uh, I think it's a religion that focuses uh, on Abraham's other son, not Isaac. Is it, Islam. Is, yeah, yeah. There we go. That's the one. Yep. That's, yeah. Anyway. All right. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 and verse
0: 14. Exodus
1: chapter 3, verse 14, it says, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay, continue on in verse 15. Let's find out who I am is. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're listening to the Breakfast Joe Podcast on Faith FM, positively different.
0: Okay, so you would think with great heroes like this, and in the typical literature of the time, when you have great heroes like this, you're not going to record anything bad that they do. No. Okay, but let's think about Abraham for a moment. Does the Bible record anything bad that Abraham did? It does. Yes. Um, Like, as in... Epically bad. The guy was the, like one of the biggest losers on the planet. Indeed, uh, particularly when it came to women. Yep. Um, so he is heading down to Egypt, and he has a wife who is stunningly beautiful. And he comes to her, as the Bible says, and tells her how beautiful she is. And you can imagine that she's like, "Oh, he thinks, stop it! Oh, it's my beautiful." Thinking, you know. And uh, uh, and so at that particular point, she's thinking she's um, she's picked a winner. Yep. And then the next thing he says is, "Okay, when we get to Egypt, because you're so beautiful." People are going to want to have you, and so in an effort to have you, they're going to kill me. Uh, Yeah. Okay. It it sounds very unconventional. Yeah, but that was how it was back in the day. Uh, And so I'm scared for my life. So when we get to Egypt, this is what I want you to do. Just tell everyone you're my sister. Right? Now, this is going to solve the problem. Let me share how this is going to solve the problem. This is going to solve the problem because if she is his sister... Then uh, he can just say, "Oh, she's just my sister. You take her and go." Yeah. So he gets away alive, and she gets taken into sexual slavery. Yeah. And everybody's happy, right? Well. Okay. Look. Whatever happened to a man defending his wife and standing up for his wife? You know, at that particular point, I think Sarah would have been thinking to herself, "You know what? I sure picked a loser right here. What kind of an abject coward she would not have been a hanging happy out with." She would not have been a happy camper. And they get to Egypt and none other. She must have been a stunner. Oh, yeah. Because Pharaoh himself takes her, Oof. adds her to the harem, Oof. and God has to step in and intervene and rescue Sarah and restore Sarah back to Abraham, else things would have gone really, really, really bad. Hair shaped Okay, so when you, when you start to look at the story of Abraham, you find that, okay, and here was a man who God comes to him. God says God comes to him with a promise. Promises are great when they come from God, aren't they? They are indeed. God came to you with a promise. You'd be pretty excited, I imagine. Yeah, I know. Every every time it rains, I see a promise. And guess what? Okay, but what if Jesus turned up, shared a meal with you, and as a part of that meal um, said, okay, here, here's how it is, limb, just for you. This is for you, no, but not for anybody else, but yep. just for you. I've got this very, very special promise. Beauty. And he gives you a very special promise. How would you feel? I'd feel pretty good about it. Pretty honored, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know what Abraham does? What does he do? He laughs at him. He <laughs>, laughs at
1: God. <laughs> That's uh, that, that is, yeah. Look, in hindsight, it's probably not the best thing he's ever done,
0: is it? No, it's disrespectful, and it's also a tremendous lack of faith. even even for someone that isn't if if, if it, even if it wasn't
1: God, for example, it's still very rude and disrespectful.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And Sarah laughs as well, but uh, she's another. Um, Another another person right there. Okay, so when we when we consider Abraham and start to look at his life, oh, and then and then of course, um, his, you know God rebukes him for laughing at him. He's like, "I'm God; I can do this." And so Abraham starts to think to himself, like, "You know, God can't actually do this. This is actually quite impossible." You know, my wife is too old. He promised me to have a son through my wife. That's uh, not possible. And so Sarah comes along and says, "Well, why don't you uh, sleep with my handmaid?" Uh, my servant girl and have a child by her and you can and we can call that our child and we will help God out that way and we will solve God's problem for him because God has promised something that he can't do. And so Abraham sort of like, well, you know, um, Sarah has a, uh, a young servant girl and she's kind of pretty, so yeah, why not? So he commits adultery, mind you, breaks the law of God in an effort – to help God out crazy crazy things this is this is pretty nuts and of course it turns into the most dysfunctional family you can ever imagine because God does come along and God does give Sarah a child and she does have Isaac and um and Hagar has Ishmael and those two Sons became the fathers of two separate nations that have kind of never stopped fighting each other for about the last 4,000 years. So Abraham's effort to try and help God out has created 4,000 years of war in our world. Indeed. And what was, what was uh, Isaac
1: and, and Ishmael's relationship was it a. Well, they were half brothers. So did they have a good relationship or were they sort of like. No,
0: because Ishmael was the older son. Yep. And as the older son, he had the birthright. Yep. Uh, but Isaac was the legitimate son. And because he was the legitimate son, he had the birthright. And you can imagine that both sons would be feeling pretty insecure pretty about their about situation. Yeah. And whenever people are insecure, they act badly. Indeed. And this would have been a terrible home in which to live to the point that God said, Hagar's going to have to leave. And this is a really good example here of something that we need to stop and think about. And that is that in some homes, there is a time when that home needs to break up and when those children are actually going to do better and are going to be raised better in a single parent home than in a home where both parents are and both parents are dysfunctional. So there's a there's a, there's a definite object lesson there, and it must have been heartbreaking for Abraham, and for you know everybody involved. This was just the most terrible circumstance that you could even possibly begin to imagine uh, that w- that has arisen right here. And so, yeah, how did we get sidetracked onto this? We went to we. Went okay, to- we were talking about we were talking about the founder of. The nation of Israel. Yes. And we were talking about, you know, one of the greatest heroes of the Bible and how the Bible does, just tells it as it is. The Bible is history. They say that Herodotus was the father of history. Others call him the father of lies. They say that he's the father of history because when Herodotus recorded the past, Herodotus. Would record defeats. Now they were highly favored in Greek favor. So he would record, you know, the defeat of the Battle of Thermopylae, where the Greeks were just smashed and their king was killed, and it was a devastating defeat for them. And so Herodotus records that, unlike other historians who'd be like, Thermopylae? What battle in Thermopylae? Nothing happened in Thermopylae? (laughs) Never heard of the place. Uh, because the Persians just smashed them there. But he records it in very heroic language and makes the They defeated, fought hard. Oh, yeah, they, they battled defeated, long. The they 300, the didn't 300. Make it. Um, and so he makes it incredibly heroic. Herodotus is not the father of history. The Bible is the father of history, because the Bible really actually portrays it just as it was. Um, it's a very, very different scenario you have when you come to the Bible because the Bible doesn't flavor it in favor of the Israelite nation. In fact, you could say it flavors it against the Israelite nation in many, many ways. Okay, so let's uh, move off of our sidetrack and let's get down <laughs> to actually what we actually are supposed to be studying and let's go to First Samuel chapter 17. First Samuel chapter seventeen and let's talk about David and Solomon. Okay, so the monarchy of David and Solomon, this was the high point of Israelite history. This was when the nation of Israel only well, came its closest to achieving what God had destined it to be, and actually for a moment became a small empire. But let's read the story here, First Samuel chapter 17, verse 1 to 3. We'll start right there.
1: All right. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and, cam- and camped between Sokka and Judah, and Azekah and Ephes-Demim. Saul ca- counted by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So, Philist- so the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel.
0: Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Notice here that the Bible gives very, very precise details as to the location of this battle. Indeed. Uh, In fact, the location of the battle is triangulated with various geographical landmarks so that we can pinpoint exactly where it took place, and as far as archaeological sites go in the ancient world, we can go there today and we can say this is a genuine site. This is where the battle of David and Goliath happened. And that's because of the incredible detail that is given and the geographical description. And if you go there today, um, the site of Kerbet Kha'afa is located on the hills in exactly the area of the Israelite camp as described in this chapter. And archaeologists have been doing excavations there. And what they have found is absolutely fascinating. We're going to come back and talk about it in just a moment.
1: You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different.
0: Okay, so the Bible has a lot of geographical location uh, details in relationship to the battle between David and Goliath. And what's interesting is that, okay, let's say that David and Solomon never existed. How much is that actually going to affect the Gospel of Count? Okay, so if David didn't exist, then there's no Jerusalem, which is the capital of the nation. Um, there's no temple that is built by Solomon, which is one of the wonders of the ancient world. Um, there's no future Messiah because Jesus came as a descendant of David and if, uh, even if Jesus came and said lots of good things, if he claimed to be a descendant of David and he wasn't, then he was a liar and so he's not actually a good person. Um, the entire Israelite history would have to be rewritten And the gospel goes out the window. And so this is one of the unique things about Christianity is that it relies very, very heavily on being able to establish its authenticity from history. You don't need that with other religions like uh, Hinduism or Buddhism and so forth because they are not reliant on the accuracy of the historical aspects of their so-called sacred books. Uh, because it's a philosophy, you know, and it's nothing more. It doesn't matter whether the Buddha lived or didn't live. It's just a philosophy that you go by, whereas if Jesus did not live and did not die and was not resurrected, there's no such thing as Christianity. If David did not live and Solomon did not live and they did not build the temple and build the city of Jerusalem, then there's no such thing as the religion of Judaism. If Abraham did not live and have a son named Ishmael, there is no such thing as the religion of Islam. And so being able to historically verify the existence of these various individuals is critical to the existence of these religions and of course for a very very long time archaeologists have claimed that there was no such thing as David there was no such thing as you know an Israelite empire and that there's no evidence for a period of prosperity in which all of this took place but if you take one simple story here David a teenage kid fighting a giant and the Bible gives you all of this detail. If you then go down to First Samuel chapter seventeen and verse fifty-two, the Bible speaks about something else. Uh, would you mind reading for us verse? 52,
1: please. Oh, right. That's on the next page, isn't it? It is. Verse 52. So this is the aftermath now of the battle between David and Goliath. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Akron. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road from Sharem as far as Gath and Akron.
0: Okay, so here we have this uh, description that tells where the Philistines were killed. They were killed from Sharaim to Gath and Ekron. So they ran for it. And, of course, that is in the ancient battles. That was when the real killing took place. When battles were fought and armies faced face, you know, stood face to face to each other, it wasn't until one army, there were, there were very little casualties until one side turned and ran. And when one side turned and ran, there were mass casualties. And this is exactly what has happened. Goliath has been killed. The Philistines have turned and run. And mass casualties take place. And the Bible describes it as from Sharaim to Gath and Ekron, which were Philistine cities. So basically, they run back to get behind the walls of their cities as fast as they can. Now, if you go to the area that is described here, where this battle took place, and the Bible gives you know pinpoint details as to where it is. There you find the city of Shuram. Now, the word Sharim simply means two gates. All ancient cities had one gate. This gate, this ancient city had two gates. And guess what archaeologists found right there where the battle took place? They found a city with two, two gates. gates, just as the Bible said. And so this is what archaeologists find. And we have to remember that archaeologists are incredibly limited. And the reason that they're limited is because 1%, less than 1% of all of the available sites in archaeology to excavate have been excavated. Out of those sites, only 1% of a site ever gets excavated. So you excavate, you know, you dig a trench here, you dig a trench there, you draw your conclusions from it. Out of those sites that have been excavated, only 1% of possible artefacts that you could find actually survive because unless it's made out of stone or ceramic, pretty much it's not going to survive. It's going to perish. That's right. And so you're working at a tremendous disadvantage and yet archaeologists turn up... Um, information, you know, over 100 people in the Bible have been identified from archaeology, positively identified. And King David is one of them because for a long time, archaeologists poo hooed the idea of a golden era of Israelite um, occupation of this area. And they poo hooed the concept that there was ever a king named David until 1993. In the northern city of Tel Dan, they uncovered a monumental inscription. This was written by King Hazael of Damascus, and of course he is in the Bible, um, anointed by Elijah to be king over the Syrians. Um, He records his victory over the king of Israel and over the king of the house of David. There you go. Now, you're not going to have that kind of an inscription unless David actually existed. You'd think so. And here he speaks of the descendants of David, uh, which is exactly the same way that the dynasty of David is described in the Bible. Um, And so you've got some very, very powerful archaeological evidence here that corroborates the Bible story. And this is what you're going to find, is the more you dig, the more you're going to find, even when very, very little has ever been preserved. Okay, so we've got a great story right here, and maybe one time we can... uh, Uh, dig more deeply into um, this particular story but um, there's just so much more here we could uh, it's a very big topic to unpack isn't it yeah love the story of David and Goliath yeah it's one of those stories that I think we all grow up with as children absolutely and as we're growing up with it as children we you know David becomes such a hero because he was a kid when he did this here's a piece of trivia you know why he took five stones Because he had five, uh, five, four, Goliath had four other brothers. Goliath had four brothers, yeah, absolutely. And if they came chasing, he was going to be ready for each one of them. Indeed. Um, One shot. (laughs) What's also interesting is that modern Israeli military doctrine is based on this story right here. Mm. This is the foundation of their their military doctrine. And the reason for that is because they're a tiny nation surrounded by very, very large nations, all of whom are their enemies. And so they are a David surrounded by a lot of Goliaths. And so when you read back through the military history of Israel, this is how you see them operating. The uh, military doctrine is strike first, take out the uh, means of communication. So David struck first. And he hit the giant between the eyes, take out the means of communication. Once the uh, communication is destroyed, then you go in for the killer blow um, on the key elements. Of the enemy, so take out their greatest resources. Once their greatest resources are taken out, you've cut the head off the giant, and now you go after the nation itself or the army of that nation itself. And so, yeah, interesting uh, analysis that you can read I- Israeli analysis of the battle that took place right here and how it all happened.